good to see happy fourth, a blessed fourth to everybody. And God is, God is good. And we've been delivered from the heat apocalypse. Oh, man. Um, hey, I want to share with you for the passage, a passage from one of my favorite um, leadership books, probably my favorite leadership book ever called The Missional Leader. And it's a reflection on leadership and the birth of our nation speaks for itself. This is, so this is a missional leader by Alex Rock, Alan Roxburgh and Fred Romanek, and they're working with, they're quoting from John Ellis's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Founding Brothers. So I'll just read this. John Ellis's Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Founding Brothers, The Revolutionary Generation, illustrates the experimental state, the experimentation stage. They talk about this experimentation stage in leadership. The book is about the men who participated in forming the American nation. As Ellis points out, the creation of a separate American nation occurred suddenly rather than gradually. No one present at the start knew how it would turn out at the end. What in retrospect has a look of a foreordained unfolding of God's will was in reality an improvisational affair in which sheer chance, pure luck, both good and bad, and specific decisions made in the crucible of specific military and political crises determine the outcome. This guy's right, not writing from a Christian perspective, but he's making a point here. The basic framework for all these institutions and traditions was built in a sudden spasm of enforced and makeshift construction during the final decades of the 18th century. Romanuk and Roxburgh want to say, he argues that it was neither a grand vision nor a big plan that formed the American nation, but a group of men who, in the exigencies of the moment, filled with great stress and without any clarity of outcome, instigated a series of experiments that began to form the nascent republic. The real drama of the American Revolution was its inherent messiness. This meant recovering the exciting but terrifying sense that all the major players had at the time, namely that they were making it up as they went along, improvising on the edge of catastrophe. Then there is this observation. For John Adams, the American Revolution was still an experiment, a sail into uncharted waters that no other ship of state had ever successfully navigated. There were no maps or charts to guide government claiming to derive its authority and legitimacy from public opinion, that murky source of sovereignty that could be as choppy and as unpredictable as the waves of the ocean. He had been a member, Adams, of the crew on his maiden's voyage, even taken his turn at the helm, so he knew as well as anyone, better than most, that they had nearly crashed and sunk on several occasions. He had argued bitterly among themselves throughout the night in the 1790s about the proper course. Final paragraph. This is how effective, lasting missional transformation starts to happen. It cannot be done by large-scale plans imposed on people. It is done by initiating all manner of experiments around the edges where people, and this is church, where people are given permission to try out what they are learning. These experiments are not about creating permanent change. They're about testing and discovering along the way. The beauty of such experiments is that like the wind of the spirit in our sails, there is no telling where they'll take a congregation. I love that. That is beautiful reflection on the, on the church and on the founding of the nation. 
and we thank God for our founding fathers, for our military who continues to stand for freedom, and our founders who created the framework for what they stand for and for what we can learn from that about experimenting, freeing you up. We want to create an atmosphere as a church where we can experiment around the dynamic edges in the spirit, try stuff, and see what God does. That's church. Heavenly Father, thank you for July 4th. Thank you for this nation. Thank you that our founding fathers were so daring and brave. And We don't claim to be perfect. We are a messy and still a mess, but so graced and blessed. It's unbelievable. I thank you, God, for John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington, all the fathers and all who've come since. And we ask humbly for your blessing upon our nation um, and pray now that as the word is proclaimed and as we as a people seek to uh, be interdependent and as people dependent on you, that we seek to be a light for the world as blessed to be a blessing, um, that we would be humbled and empowered as a church, salting this earth that is our nation, that we might uh, be a light to the whole world as your people and connected with all nations throughout the earth. Um, uh, which all nations that come and help continue to make up our nation as well. Thank you, God, for this and everything. Amen. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, through faith, in in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, earlier this week, I had one of those days. Do you ever have one of those days? We went, we had to go and get the new tags on our minivan, the Washington tags. Yeah, we had to go in person. We could have done it by mail, but we didn't want to wait that long. Went in person, got in a line, had to wait half hour. Then when we got to the front of the line, we realized we didn't have everything we needed. We did not have everything we needed. We had to go home get something else. We got back. They said, you can come right up. We still had to wait a little bit. 
took care of that. Then we got, went and got an oil change. It was, took longer than we thought. There was a delay. Then we went. And I tried to take off the plate. And I couldn't. I had the wrong screwdriver. Then I went and got another screwdriver that I couldn't get the plate off. Then I had to go home and get my, my drill to get the plate off. Uh, so it was just one of those days where I felt held up. I felt stuck. And then we went to O'Donnell's restaurant afterward and had Sacramento Irish food, which was great. Uh, but uh, the, the, for Jill's birthday, it was Jill's birthday. But boy, it starts to build up, you know, when you're in those situations, you just keep hitting blocks and blocks and blocks, and you feel like you're a prisoner in the moment. Come on. Paul's a prisoner. Paul got crosswise with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. They were threatened by what he was teaching, and so they ginned up the Romans to arrest him. Paul appeals to the emperor. He winds up under house arrest. This all boils over in Acts 22 to 23. You can read about it. Ultimately, Paul gets under house arrest for preaching, and now he says in verse 1b, I, Paul, the prisoner. I sort of felt like that on Thursday. Maybe you've been there. But then he does this. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner for the sake you Gentiles, pivot. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. He pivots in a verse to Jesus and grace. He moves fully, he's aware that he's imprisoned, and suddenly he turns to grace. Surely you have heard about this grace, this mission I'm on. Even while he's in chains, metaphorically, really, temporally, realistically, he's in chains. Spiritually, he's got this bigger picture. I think of my friend Don Wiley back in my hometown, who's since passed away, but he used to talk about the grace or the gift or the blessing of being on disability. He was on disability. He talked about the blessing of being on disability. What was the blessing of being on disability? Well, it meant that while he was on disability, he could have a visitation ministry. He went from being this high-flying banker to doing visitation ministry, high-flying with people in Christ, and he saw that as a grace. Sometimes life will throw nasty stuff at us. Maybe it's the delay in the line or, or roadblocks throughout the day, simple stuff, or it's bigger medical stuff or everything in between. But Paul, even in the midst of what blocks him up, doesn't lose the bigger picture. He remembers this whole thing is sitting within something bigger. Whatever battle we're fighting, whatever's going on with us physically, whatever's going on with us around us, whatever, however our day's going, if you're stuck in a line, if you're waiting like we spend a lot of time doing and it seems pointless, no, the mission is always there. We're always on mission. It's a matter of perspective. Paul shows us that. I'm a prisoner, but have you heard? In fact, his struggle in his change just becomes a new platform. It's a new place. Could we see those lines while getting our uh, plates or a longer checkout line where someone's bugging us and waiting, taking too long to check their chains out or, whatever, or change or whatever, ch- chit-chatting or, or something that goes awry isn't as what we planned? Can we see those moments as a platform 
for mission. That's what they still are. The mission doesn't change, even though our circumstances do. Paul gets that through and through. Paul then tells the story, and maybe what I need to do, what we need to do in those lines is to remind ourselves of the story and those weights and those hiccups. This is what we do as a church. We do in our Bible studies. We do in fellowship. We do in prayer. We're telling the story of what God's up to over again. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Okay, I remember the big picture. Not saying we say the things going on in the world aren't important, but again, they just sit in this bigger reality. Am I getting car tags in Washington State? My getting an oil change, my changing the plates, that sits within this bigger reality of the kingdom. For Paul, he describes it as the administration of God's grace that was given me for you. Maybe he's even reminding himself this, you know, as he's in chains. I'm not going to forget who I am. I may be in chains, but I'm still on mission. And he says, that is the mystery made known to me by, revela- by revelation. The mystery made known to me by revelation. Okay, I'm in chains, but I'm, I, what's been revealed is something bigger than this. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, but has now been revealed. There's something new happening. Humanity was not in the driver's seat here. Humanity is along for the ride. It's God's ride, and God's destination, the mystery's conclusion, is inclusion. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel— members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Three togethers there. Now we can hear togetherness in Scripture. We go, yeah, of course, okay. Kumbaya, around the fire, we get that, you know, pray, you know. Of course, of course. But we have to not miss the context here because what Paul is saying is fairly radical when you understand there was a raging enmity between Jews and Gentiles in this moment. And as one scholar put it, Paul himself had been a proud Pharisee, and he had shared the general Jewish disparagement of the Gentiles. His conversion, his conversion meant a complete transformation in his thinking. He turned to see, he was turned to see Jesus, whom he had persecuted as the Christ the Son of God, the only Savior, and his all, and as a result, his whole attitude toward the Gentiles was revolutionized. And all of these privileges now that the Jews had, they could share with the Gentiles. That was a shift, a massive shift in Paul's way of thinking. It was cataclysmic. So this isn't just put an arm around your neighbor, this is put an arm around your enemy Well, you don't have to go far in the news or the newspaper or on the web to see that there's an enemy, an enemies. There's all kinds of tribalism. We are tribal by nature. This Jew-Gentile thing continues. Now, it's not all bad. It's fine to have groups of athletes and groups of artists and parents of young kids and empty nesters and retirees and quilters and dog lovers and new employees and small business owners. We got to get these groups together. That can be helpful to people. It can be supportive. It can be helpful and supportive until it becomes absolute and divisive. When differences become divisive, when differences are used to dehumanize, when this group over there is, is thrown, you know, this group here throws stones at that group over there, when the divisions make us feel like that group isn't 
that they're, they're bad, they're evil, they're because they're different, right? That's when we need to be saved. <laughs> that's when God needs to intervene. That's exactly what God does in the gospel. He delivers us in Jesus Christ from our consistent absolutizing of our tribes. Ground zero for this was the enmity between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, but it continues even now. And let me review last week. The way God does this is absolutely definitive. Last week we talked about in chapter 2, verse 16, he kills the enmity on the cross. It says in the text, the enmity between Jews and Gentiles was killed on the cross. He killed it. And then secondly, in in chapter 2, verse 15, he brought together one new humanity in himself. So when this group and that group uh, live enmity between each other, they're living outside of Christ. In Christ, the Christian Republican and the Christian Democrat meet as one. In Christ, the artist who's a Christian, the athlete who's a Christian meets as one. In Christ, the Amish pacifist farmer and the Navy SEAL of Christian faith meet as one. In Christ, the Christian 20-something and the Christian 70-something meet as one. In Christ, the contemporary worship music lover and the traditional music lover meet as one. You know? And that doesn't mean there can't be different, different languages, right? We still have Pentecost. Remember, God doesn't create one language. He creates one people. That's the whole idea. So you can have many languages going on, but they, they come together and hang out. You know, one of the most profound uh, things we can teach, I can say the young people, because I'm 51, <laughs> but, but uh, is if you, if you know somebody, if you're a, a Republican or a Democrat and you're a Christian, you have a Christian friend who's the opposite party, you go to lunch or Bible study with them and you build a friendship with them, you know. In this day of enmity, that speaks volumes. Because they go, what is going on in that church that people who are different, that different, still can connect in Christ? Remember my former church, I'll never forget, there was Charlie and there was Vic, and Charlie was a hardcore libertarian farmer, and Vic was a Democrat artist, you know what, and very, but I remember them standing in front of me shaking hands, those guys loved each other, you know, oh, it was beautiful. And they can have their differences, and they can debate. But it, again, it sits within this larger reality of being in Christ. Oh, the world is desperate for that. But I warn you, there'll be, well, awareness, there's two reactions to that that's going to happen. One, if you do that around people who are, who've, who've sold out to their tribalism, they're going to reject it and call you a traitor, okay? However, there's other people that are going to go, I want that. I want that. So be prepared, right? Be prepared. Paul's going to tell us later in Ephesians, we are at war after all. Right? And one of the ways the devil works is to divide through these tribes. Divide and conquer, right? And the very best thing about our country, which is the diversity, becomes an avenue for the devil to divide us. Well, we are the church, and we've got the gospel. We've got a gospel for that, amen? We can bring people together. So let's blow the world's minds with the sort of unity that only the gospel can explain. Let's blow the world's minds with a sort of unity that only the gospel can explain. And then there's verse 10. Are you ready to have your mind really blown? His, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. These rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are, scholarship tells us, both friendly and hostile spiritual beings. So, get this, we are God's plan for how to minister to friendly and hostile spiritual beings. We, that church, when we're living in such a way that only the gospel can explain, will witness to angels and demons. That is what Paul is saying here in verse 10. With the mystery of God's all-inclusive reach to people in Jesus Christ, the plan for that ministering of the mystery is us, and the scope of that mystery includes all of humanity and the cosmos, including friendly and hostile spiritual beings. What a plan. Are you ready? It ain't boring, I'll tell you that. I'm thinking it's, it's more like Indiana Jones, you know? Church is, you know, this is not a yawning church. This is a church on the edge, right? What a plan. Well, has the grandness of God's plan captured your heart? I know I, know I as a pastor need to be refreshed and reminded of it daily. So we all do. Is Christian unity with those different from you a part of your life? And again, we're not saying everybody has to think the same. Vote your conscience. Be different. Be who you are. Follow your convictions, right? We're not saying that. But lay them at the foot of the altar. That's what we're saying, right? Jesus first. Is Christian unity with those different from you a part of your life? Is there ways that, there are ways that tribalism has crept into your faith? And we're all battling that now. Because we've got media that make money off of keeping us tribal keeping us angry, right? keeping us in our reptile brains and our reactive brains instead of keeping us in Christ where we can think and be creative and connect. And, you know. Is Christian unity with those different from you a part of your life? And then thirdly, are you aware of the profoundness of our ministry? Uh, are you aware of the profound impact of our ministry, not just horizontally, but vertically in these spiritual realms that we are God's witness to impact even spiritual angels and demons. That is amazing. Well, may it be so for all of us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.